Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And it's my pleasure to welcome you. Um, Allison did it earlier, and I'll add my word of welcome if you're here for the first time, and especially welcome to Carter O'Driscoll's family and friends. We're going to be baptizing Carter later in the service, but if you're here for the first time, we want to welcome you in a special way. Um, if you're watching online for the first time, and welcome to all of you. Even if you've been here for decades, we still want to welcome you. So we're into the second week of a new sermon series in the book of Daniel. And last week, we followed God's people into exile in Babylon. We saw they were defeated in battle. They were taken prisoner. And as we heard in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 137, they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and they wept. And they asked this question, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a strange place, while we're suffering facing this adversity. And we started to get a glimpse of the answer, one possible answer to that question last week, as we watched as Daniel and three of his friends were chosen for an elite training course in the city of Babylon. It was this amazing opportunity, except the cost was not just their freedom, which they'd already lost, but their identity as well. They received new Babylonian names, they were redefined, and they were also given the best food and drink in the land, right from the king's table, which seems like a good thing, but we saw also that that was a way of maybe undermining their identity too. So far, they have gone along with everything. They've been kind of passive recipients of all this, but that's going to change in our reading this morning. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach this morning and may the reflections of all of our hearts and our minds be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, would you encourage us today through your word? Amen. So we're going to read from Daniel chapter 1. And if you have a Bible with you, um, this will be the time to open it. If you're at home, encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, that'll help you to refer back to the first seven verses of the chapter. Um, but we're reading verses 8 to 21 this morning of the first chapel, ch chapter of Daniel. But Daniel... Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of those 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. 
So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if somebody could grab my cup of water at the back. I forgot to bring it up with me. Oh, is there? Okay, thank you. So here's the central question that the book of Daniel raises for us, and the question we're going to be pondering for the next couple of months as we we study this book. How can we live faithfully as Christians in a world that does not seek to put God first and that is even sometimes actively hostile to Christian faith? Today we're going to look at how Daniel and his friends receive their training and education and excel at it, while all the while remaining faithful to God. And they do that in three ways. First of all, they say no to part of the culture around them. They draw a line They are distinct from others. And we see that in verses 8 to 10. Secondly, they say yes to most of the culture in which they find themselves. They embrace it. And we're going to follow that in verses 11 to 16. And third and finally, they trust God with the outcome. Through all of that, figuring out the no and the yes. And we'll see that especially in verses 17 to 21. The message for us in this passage is that when we experience disappointment, God always gives us a new opportunity. He calls us to be different so that we can make a difference. In verse 8, where we begin our reading this morning, it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So up until this point, we've had kind of a strange situation where Daniel and his friends seem to be doing pretty well. Like their people, they're defeated and they have suffered through that, but now they're chosen for a special training program because they've got some things going for them. They're good-looking and smart and show lots of potential. And the perks are pretty great, too. They're going to have a chance to acquire certain skills, and they'll be treated like royalty along the way surrounded with comfort, supplied with food and wine from the king's table. Yes, they've been given new Babylonian names, and yes, that threatens their identity, their loyalty to the God of Israel, the one true God. But up until verse 8, they seem okay with all that. They're going along with it. But then Daniel says no. Why draw the line here? Well, I think partly because they're clever, and they realize if they'd refuse to go along with 
this education program they'd been signed up for if they had refused to accept their new names, it probably would have been game over. They were slaves and they likely would have been killed for such obvious insubordination. But I think even more, they say no to the royal food and wine, as delicious and enticing as it must have been, because they want to obey God's law in the Bible. Now that verb in the English, defile, is repeated twice, and it tells us that some of the food must have been against Jewish dietary restrictions. The food was not kosher. And so let's be clear that they're taking a big risk here. Sure, they go to the chief official, and it's kind of secret what they're doing. They cut a deal with him, but he could easily have turned them in. What are the first words out of his mouth? I am afraid. And he has reason to be afraid. Next week, we'll see the king of Babylon tell some of his most senior advisors that he will cut them up into pieces and demolish their homes if they can't complete one assignment for him. That's how the Babylonians rolled. So Daniel says no to the food and wine out of obedience to God. But he's taking a risk here. How would you say you are obeying God by saying no to the culture around you? How have you done that this morning, perhaps? Or in the past week? We can be tempted to conform to what everyone else is doing, to want to fit in. It's only natural. But if you're going to live as a Christian, you're going to have to figure out how God is calling you to be different. And we do that not simply on a desire, out of a desire to be different, but based on what Scripture teaches and in the community of the church with the Holy Spirit we trust guiding us. Jewish kosher laws don't apply to us, but the Old Testament principle of Sabbath, to give one example, is important for any Christian. Sabbath literally means to stop, to cease, to desist, to stop working. And the practice of fasting or not eating is similar. Really, it arises from this Sabbath principle. And that's what Daniel and his friends do here. In my family, we have something we call digital Sabbath, where we fast from the internet on what we call screen-free Sundays. Our kids aren't quite so sure about the freedom part of that. <laughs> we started doing this three years ago, and I have to tell you, it met with considerable resistance, and it still does at times. But it's amazing to watch the kids and Judith and I regain our focus as we keep Sabbath in that way. What do we do instead of being glued to our screens? Well, we play games, we read books, we go for walks, we stop and eat together as a family. How often do we stop to eat, right? We're always running, eating while we run. We run and eat, eat and run. We, as a result of this practice of Sabbath in my family, are not as distracted. We are not pulled in a thousand different ways like we used to be. And worship together is at the center of that. That's how we start every Sunday. When we gather like this as a church community for this roughly 90-minute focus on God, it sets the tone for the day and for the week. 
So how are you saying no to all the demands on your time? How are you making room for God in your life on a daily, weekly, annual basis? Making room for peace of mind, making room for others. Another example of saying no to the culture around us comes from the early church when Christians were famous for their generosity. That culture, like ours, sent the message that to live the good life, you needed money and you needed pleasure. So people should be tight with their cash and loose with their bodies in the pursuit of that pleasure. On the one hand, be careful with your money, hold on to it, keep it for yourself, you're going to want to spend it so you can buy pleasure. But on the other hand, indulge your sexual desires also for your own pleasure. One pagan writer in the third century said that the early Christians would share their table with everyone, but they would not share their beds. And so faithfulness within marriage is one example of that. Now, both of those impulses, to be generous with your money and to be careful with your body, to have limits, were countercultural then and they still are today. Some of my favorite stories about our church reflect that generosity. I remember going to a Habitat for Humanity dinner in my first year as the pastor of Courtright and telling the story in front of a few hundred people of how we had raised $80,000 in one Sunday to build a house for a family here in Guelph. And there was this collective gasp in that banquet hall in the Delta Hotel that I will never forget. And I saw the same thing at the Garden Open House this past summer in July as I met people from the neighborhood who came out to thank us for giving them zucchini and potatoes and carrots. One woman said to me, why does your church put so much work and effort into this huge garden and then just give it away? And I tried to explain that we believe in God and God has given us so much. We are grateful and we respond by wanting to share ourselves and our faith with others. The pattern of this world is to pursue your own self-interest, but we are called to say no to that, to resist that, to not conform to that pattern. Churches that conform to the culture around them do not last. They offer no alternative based on God's unchanging wisdom in the Bible. And like Daniel, you are going to need other people around you if you have any hope of doing this. Later in the service, when we baptize you, Carter, one of the things I'm going to invite you to do is to look around the room. Look around at all these people. Because you have a family, and members of your family are here. But today, we celebrate your official entry. You've been here for a while, I know. But your official entry into our church family. Imagine the prayer, the discussion, the debate among these four friends in Babylon. They were committed to remembering God's law, the instruction they got in from their parents, elders, teachers, and then to applying it to their situation. Wisdom is finding the right way to do the right thing. They were a small group, not unlike our small groups at Courtright. And God showed them the way together, how to set the right limits. 
So how are you saying no to the culture around you? I'll ask it again. How are you saying no to your own self-interest so you can be faithful to God and generous to others? Like Daniel and his friends, we are called to be different so that we can make a difference. Daniel and his friends also say yes to Babylon in some important ways. It's sad, but I think it's a fact that Christians have a reputation for saying no to the culture around them, for being against things. Yes, we may face temptation to conform to the pattern of the world. We've talked about that already. But sometimes we are way too quick to condemn the world, to distance ourselves from the world. Look at how Daniel interacts with this court official and with the guard. He is patient and reasonable. And he's being sincere. He's not hiding his hatred. He's not being manipulative. He cultivates a good relationship with these two Babylonians by coming up with this idea for a 10-day test period of his vegetarian diet. And he does that to address their fears, to ensure they don't get in trouble. Daniel, who is the captive, shows kindness to his captors, to those in power. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't fight against them or see them primarily as enemies. But Daniel gives his biggest yes to the culture simply by being a good student and trying his best to understand the Babylonian way of life, their literature and language. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, with reference to the exile in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah writes to the Jewish exiles and tells them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which God had called them. You cannot do that then or now without engaging with and embracing the world around you. I grew up in a church that wanted to be completely separate and insulated from the city around it. As a teenager, I was excited to explore music, you know, that's such a big part of being that age, self-expression through music. I also became interested in art and reading and just society in so many ways, learning about it. And yes, there were aspects of that that I should have said no to, but I also saw so much beauty and goodness in it, and rightly so. And my church seemed to want to look the other way, to turn away from it. And I lost my faith in those years and up until my mid-20s. And part of that was because the questions I was asking were not allowed. My doubts were not allowed, or so it seemed to me. We can say yes to the world around us. We can embrace it by letting its questions challenge us, not by only asking the safe questions that are internal questions within the church. Rebecca McLaughlin does that so well in her books. I brought a couple with me today. I, I came across her at a conference a few years ago, back when conferences were possible. Remember that? Oh, that was good. She's English, and you know, if you have an English accent, immediately people assume you're wise and... and <laughs> It's so unfair, actually, because my mom's English, and I was like one generation removed from that advantage. Um, she's English, has a PhD in, in literature from Cambridge University. She's smart. Not that everyone who has PhDs is, but um, these... 
That's, that was unscripted. I, I strike that from the record. Um, she wrote, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. So she takes her cue from questions people are asking in our wider society. She also wrote 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. And so I wonder, are we ready with an answer for the hope that we profess? Are we prepared to respond to accusations of racism or colonialism or the suggestion that Christians have been intolerant towards LGBTQ people? Rebecca McLaughlin, in her, in her outstanding books, people have called her a new C.S. Lewis, does not dodge the criticisms because they're valid. Some of them, a lot of them. And we believe in truth and it can set us free. So I was actually spending some time with a friend of mine this week um, over breakfast and we were talking about maybe there's interest in reading one of these books together. So if that's something that would appeal to you, talk to me, send me an email. As Christians, we can also say yes to the world around us by recognizing that God is in everything. We sang that earlier, right? This is my Father's world. The whole world is God's world. God is not limited to spiritual pursuits on Sunday morning or to nurturing good and respectable behavior in us. Christians are called to every discipline, every area of work and study, and to think Christianly about them, to see that they serve the common good. One excellent definition of that is found in Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you in your career, in your studies, in your interests, your hobbies, your volunteer commitments? To do justice and to love goodness and to walk humbly with your God. At the young adult lunch last Sunday at Justin's place, we got into an animated discussion, a few of us, about, among other things, the lack of affordable housing in Canada and about environmentalism. We were, we were sitting in a circle. There was a, a teacher um, in training, um, an urban planner, an artist, um, a biologist, someone studying biology. And we were talking about how our Christian faith affects all of these things. And, and we talked about how the church could be more actively engaged in seeking creative solutions for affordable housing for our young people. This touches every one of us, and most of us are incredibly privileged. We know that our kids, our grandkids, a younger generation is going to have an incredibly hard time living in the ways that those of us who are older have benefited from, have enjoyed. But this is also about the city of Guelph and its future flourishing. How could we use our Courtright Church property in that pursuit? Maybe you thought Christians didn't care about the environment, only about souls and salvation. But did you know there's a Christian organization called Arosha that has a farm, a study center, just south of Puslinch? And their mission, their singular mission, is to pursue creation care based on what the Bible teaches. And Arosha is around the world. Their Canadian headquarters are in British Columbia. All of these initiatives arise from Christian faith and people studying and thinking Christianly about problems in the world, about challenges, about opportunities. Notice in verse 17, 
that these studious Jewish boys don't just gain knowledge and understanding, but Daniel develops the ability to interpret dreams and visions. So what's that about? Well, I think it's a form of counseling. It's, it's taking that knowledge and it's applying it. It's sharing it with people. It's helping people through their personal adversity. And we'll see Daniel start to do that next week. But already it's clear that he's called to be different, not for his own sake, but to make a difference for the sake of others. God has a purpose for him. How would you say you're taking your knowledge, your giftedness, every one of us has that kind of influence, something we're good at, something we love. How are you using that, passing it on for the sake of others? Right now, there's some area of your life that you enjoy and that you're good at. And the Holy Spirit is leading you through that interest to say yes to the world around you and to step outside of the Christian bubble you may be in and to make a difference. We see in Daniel that God calls us to be distinct, but not separate, to be in the world, but not of the world, to embrace the culture, but also to continue in our devotion to the one true God. The third and final way that Daniel and his friends remain faithful in their situation here is that they trust God with the outcome. As we've read through this, it feels like Daniel is running things. He comes up with this vegetarian plan. He comes up with the 10-day test idea. He and his friends work hard and they study hard to prepare for their exams at the end of their three-year program. But the reality behind the scenes is that God is active. We see that in verse 9. There are these little glimpses throughout this first chapter. We see where God caused the official to show favor to Daniel, an unlikely outcome. It literally says that God gave. God gave the official sympathy for Daniel. Then we see God give Daniel and his friends health and vigor, even though they've fasted from the good food that everyone else wanted and assumed was necessary to being physically healthy. And then it's in verse 17 that we see God give them the knowledge and understanding that enables them to excel, to not only pass their exams, but to be 10 times better than, than all the other wise men in the land. Three times in this first chapter of Daniel, God is described as the giver. God gives at important moments. He provides. God is in control of the outcome. And that's not just in the individual story of Daniel and his friends. The reference to King Cyrus in the final verse of this chapter isn't just for the sake of historical chronology. Cyrus was the Persian king who came along and defeated the Babylonians. So from the outset of this book of the Bible, from verse 1, you had the king of Judah and the king of Babylon fighting it out. And then at the end, you've got a new king and a new empire. It's politics, it's power. We had a federal election recently, right? Things stay the same, and yet time goes by. But the truth that we're glimpsing here behind the surface appearance of all these politics, these empires rising and falling, is that God is the real power in the world, that he offers hope through every season of history and of our lives. Even in defeat, he is with you, he will give you wisdom in disappointment. The Lord always gives us a new opportunity. I was talking to Lisa and Leandro recently. Um, for those of you who don't know 
them. Um, they're a wonderful young couple in our congregation who came to us from Brazil um, seven, eight years ago. And as I was talking to them, they gave me an update on Leisha's battle with cancer. There's nothing more disappointing than getting cancer, right? Nothing could defeat you more easily. But I was amazed at the hope they spoke of in the face of such adversity. I mean, Leisha almost glowed with it. They told me stories of how what they were going through, their suffering, have been opportunities for others to love them. To step up, to serve, and to find a deeper meaning to the drudgery of our everyday lives. Even back in Brazil, they said they were telling stories of, of how we as a congregation had rallied around them and supported them, and inspiring friends to do likewise, to care for others. They were saying that God has given them an amazing opportunity to encourage others, even in such difficult circumstances. And I don't want to leave you with any doubt that what they're going through and that cancer is an opportunity. It's not. God hates cancer. It is wrong. The world is broken, not as it should be. But out of every disappointment, out of every kind of adversity, God gives us his grace and guides us into the opportunities we have to serve others. So look, it makes no sense that Daniel and his friends would rise to the top of this powerful empire. They were weak, they were vulnerable in the face of greatness, and this vegetable diet was foolishness. Can I get an amen about vegetarianism being <laughs> foolish? No, I, I won't go there. That's... But it was crazy to say no to such pleasure, to say no to self-interest, to take that extraordinary risk that could have led to them being executed. And yet God always surprises us by working through weakness, our weakness, and he always meets us in our deepest disappointments. We see that most clearly in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes about his own weakness at a time of terrible struggle for him. And he says that the Lord's grace was sufficient for him. It's all he needed. And even that God's power, God's purposes are made perfect in our weakness. And he goes on to say that he's happy to boast about his weakness even so that Christ's power can work through him. The Christian message is that God loved us so much that he came close. Jesus became weak and poured himself out for us at the cross. Jesus said yes to the world and entered into it, fully embracing it, but he did not conform to it. He obeyed his Father's will. He was the only one who has, who could. And because of his faithfulness, and because of his ultimate sacrifice, we can come home to God and be at peace with him. And God doesn't wait for us to get it right. That's such an important part of this good news. 
He doesn't expect us to be able to navigate the things we should say no to, the things we should say yes to perfectly. God sends us out into the world from that place of amazing grace that we receive as a gift from Christ. Not on the basis of our ability to get things right, but in our weakness and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to give, to serve, and to love like Jesus does. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you call us to be holy as you are holy. And holy doesn't, doesn't just mean you know, doing moral things and making right choices. It also means being set apart for a purpose that you have for us. I pray that you would give us the wisdom today, Holy Spirit. Right now, you are guiding us to say no to something, to something maybe we've struggled with. Would you make that clear and would you help us to see the blessing you hold out for us in that? And even more, you're calling us to say yes. Maybe it's to a particular person, to an opportunity that we're wondering about, to a circumstance. Spirit, show us what that is and how to pursue it. And then ground us, root us in who we are in Christ, in his freedom, in his love, his truth, his grace and goodness. We pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.